This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Kimmy Culp, a multimedia producer and the host of All the Wiser, a podcast about finding hope and possibility on the other side of pain. Kimmy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am too, and I think we have kind of a good balance of questions today. Uh, Ideally, nothing so painful that we can't help somebody find their way through to the other side. But I, I'm excited to sort of dive into this uh, tapestry of problems this week. Do you think you have a sense uh, heading in of um, you feeling optimistic? You think we're going to be able to solve these problems? I'm feeling optimistic. I am feeling good energy um, between the microphones and with everyone listening. Beautiful. Yeah. And it's like a beautiful summer's day today, which is both delightful and, of course, deeply worrying. So I'm going to choose to focus on the nice part and enjoy it. So with all that being said, I will go ahead and read our first letter. The subject is not the actual devil. What do you do when you're confronted with hate in a medical office when they're your only option? I'm getting a big dental procedure done that requires multiple stages over eight months. There's only one small surgery center that my insurance covers and the procedure is not elective. I went yesterday for my consultation and when I was in the lobby, I saw a magazine with a cover story about how the transgender movement is evidence of demonism. There was also an article about recent earthquakes in Turkey being a result of its citizens not following the right religion. I was honestly shocked. This is a legitimate doctor's office in a fairly liberal town. The staff I have seen were all very lovely. Not to stereotype, but some of them had pink hair and eyebrow piercings. I thought maybe it was left as a prank, but the magazine had a mailing label to one of the doctors at this exact surgery center. Luckily, this wasn't the doctor doing my procedure, but I didn't know what to do next. I took the magazine and stuck it in my purse before throwing it out when I got home, but I know there'll probably be another one there next month. I'm a cis woman. I thought it might be safe for me to raise a fuss after my surgery. Is this selfish or practical? I'm going into surgery in three weeks, and there's a four-month recovery period before the second and final stage. My insurance won't allow me to go anywhere else, so I feel totally stuck. I know I can't control everything, but what's the right thing to do here? 
It's uh, it's been a while since I thought much about like dentist waiting room magazines, but certainly in my memory, they're mostly like highlights and AARP and maybe Reader's Digest, usually at least in my admittedly singular experience uh, going to dentist's office. They don't really go in for even even lightly controversial uh, subjects. Yeah. I feel like in LA, there's always like People Magazine, <laughs> quintessential LA uh, interest. But wow, I would never imagine in a million years. I feel like in LA, I mean, maybe you see a People Magazine, but this is really jaw-dropping when you think about it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's you know, a balance of these two things. First of all, it's clear she feels out of control, right? So what can she control? And I think having a plan for the path forward, both for the Mm -hmm. surgery and having her voice heard is really important. So I wish that she had insurance elsewhere because this is a lot of stress to take on as someone who's preparing for a surgery. But if that is your only option for medical care, for something that's required and painful, I I think she needs to move forward. And what I would say is having a timeline when she's healed after, and I wouldn't necessarily say raise a fuss, but have a thoughtful communication that expresses her experience and point of view and her heart around this issue and making sure her voice is heard and acknowledged. Because I think so often, you know, when we just run away or get angry, there is little room for collective change of hearts and minds or healing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I... I I agree with all of that. I, I think my sense reading this was that the letter writer had basically good instincts throughout, like, you know, throwing a magazine away. You you did what you could in the moment. That's great. Um, it's also not, you know, hurting anyone. You're not doing anything uh, that could potentially get you in a ton of trouble. You're just throwing away a freaky magazine. Uh, and, and yes, I, I, I agree. Letter writer, I don't think you need to say, well, I'm going to go out of pocket and find a dentist uh, who doesn't have insane transphobic magazines in the lobby, even if that costs me, you know, $200,000. Like that is you are absolutely right to say, like, I need this dentist to handle my dental surgery. And I think it's also reasonable to say, on balance, I would rather wait to lodge a complaint that I think there's at least a decent chance I'm going to get pushback on until after they've operated on me. Again, I didn't get the sense that this was, I fear that if I say anything, they're going to purposely yank out all my teeth so much as just, I'm going to feel a lot easier about saying something when I'm no longer dependent upon them as the only people in town who can do this surgery. So all of that made a ton of sense to me. If, if letter writer, you had any anxiety that you were being selfish or like failing to do your duty as a good citizen, I, I just don't think you should worry about that at all. But, but then yes, Kimmy, as you were saying, I think rather than raise a fuss, like you don't have to get really heated off the bat just because maybe the reaction will be good. You know, if you go through the sort of like office network rather than the individual doctor, they might say, oh, thanks for letting us know. That is a little personal for this particular doctor to be displaying in here. We'll do something about it. So that way, at least if you start out reasonable, if you need to ramp up your affect and get a little fussier later, you can, but it's hard when you come in hot. Then if somebody responds in a sort of like, oh, we'll handle that right away moment, you feel a little 
deflated. I think that's a great piece of advice because she could create some change in the office. So other patients don't have to experience this anxiety. And that comes with a voice and being heard. And and I think in a calm and measured way is normally the most impactful. So I love that. And I totally agree with feeling no guilt whatsoever and the strategy of waiting until after. So, you know, you're not going in for a surgery and going under and feeling anxious and contentious. Right. And my only other thought there too was this is a little bit more strategic. So I don't want to suggest that you have to. But again, since you don't really know how many other people besides this one individual doctor are excited about having this magazine on display, you can also frame this as just, I was really surprised to see this. This seems kind of bad for business. It's just an unnecessarily divisive and political thing to put in a dentist waiting room rather than going straight to, uh, I'm personally offended. Again, this is just a tactical suggestion. I don't mean that it's better uh, or that there's never situations where you should say, I believe this to be wrong, but you might just, it might be more effective if you appeal to this sort of like office's business sense of why would you potentially alienate and upset clients who are coming here to have dental work done as opposed to, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking you all to take a stand for trans rights. I'm just asking you not to do this one weird thing. And sometimes that argument gets you further than this is wrong. So I, I would suggest starting with that one and see if that gets you somewhere. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the perfect starting place. Yeah, but I, I think that's it. I think you got good instincts. You did the right thing in the moment. I'm always here for I stole something that was creepy. I love that move. It was great. Yeah, yeah. No, it was just like you had you had smart feet in that moment. You were just like, I'm just going to take this and like junk it somewhere. That's going to serve you well in life as long as, you know, you don't don't overdo it. But yeah, those are my last thoughts. And of course, if you do bring it up at the end and that fails, you have my total permission to bring in a lot of really off the wall, like anarchist Satanist magazines that you probably have to like order from online and like distribute all over the waiting room once you're done. Yeah. If, yeah, if, if they don't hear you out, we've got a whole nother plan. Yeah, right back in a couple of months. Also, good luck with your dental surgery. I hope that goes really, really well. That is unpleasant at best. And if things don't go well with the office, uh, write us back and we will come up with some really upsetting magazines that you can uh, start spamming them with. Yeah, and take care of yourself emotionally and physically before. I wouldn't let this preoccupy you. Just, you know, take care of yourself going into this surgery and recovering. Yeah, I think these are moments that sometimes are difficult for people to parse, especially if they're like well-meaning and concerned about the possibility of like the specter of privilege is this worry of like, is this one of those moments where I'm that person who's like failing to act and uh, not being a good ally? And I just really want to stress, letter writer, you're also just like a person who needs dental care and one of the dentists in this office did something really weird. It will be a good thing for you to uh, push back against it, absolutely. But this isn't like a Good Samaritan story where you like walked past someone in distress and just focused on your own convenience. Um, This is also just like, this is fucking weird. It's weird that you had to see that. I'm sorry you had to see that. That's very strange. Yes, it's bizarre, but shaming and judging yourself is you know, unhelpful and frankly, just not accurate. I I love just putting it in simple terms. You're somebody who needs a surgery and this is where you are going to get it done and you have a plan moving forward.
Well, that does feel like a pretty natural and easy place to pause because, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, a lot of your own work is about people looking for something new, something peaceful, something enjoyable on the other side of something really painful and not to put too fine a point on it. But I think there's definitely ways that that applies to our last letter writer situation. So I'm wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit more about the work it is that you do there. Yes. So my background is in journalism and storytelling, nonfiction journalism, both in television and film. And I fell in love with podcasting, as I'm sure you can relate to. And what we do is share stories of hope and possibility on the other side of pain. Our stories are, in general are, are pretty high stakes narrative. It's, you know, we interviewed a woman, Jessica Buchanan, who was kidnapped in Somalia and held for 90 days. We've um, interviewed Sue Klebold, who was the mother of Dylan Klebold, who was one of the Columbine shooters. So these are deeply traumatic, complex experiences, but every single guest has a sense of wisdom and perspective that has, frankly, is a gift to everyone who hears it. So those are the types of stories we tell. Um, You know, I think we do them in a way that's more uplifting and inspiring than you would imagine. And we partner with a charity on each story that's aligned with the issue that we're talking about. How long have you been working on it now? So the podcast has been, it's been four years that we have been dropping episodes. And, you know, at this point, we've interviewed close to a hundred people. And yeah, I mean, we, we delve in really to so much people's journeys of addiction, people's journeys of, you know, cancer, but really all of these dark, deep chapters that people go through and what does it look like on the other? Where do they find hope? Where do they find possibility? What have they learned that they can share with the world? Do you find that there's any threads that crop up that that seem to be in common? Do you find that there's a variety of different things so it's difficult to draw any through lines between these people's experiences? You know, I interviewed, one of my favorite interviews was Dr. Edie Eager, who's a 94-year-old Holocaust survivor. And she published her first memoir at 90, mm. which was a New York Times bestseller. But she she really talks about her experience in realizing the only thing that she could control was her thoughts, when obviously the world um, around her was the most hellish circumstances one could imagine. And that that was what she did, in fact, have control of. So I think all of our guests, to some point, have realized that, that they can't control the world around them, especially when it's chaotic and a world of pain and hurt, but they can control, to some extent, their thoughts. You know, she also talks about self-compassion, which I think most of our guests have had to find at one point. And comparative suffering, she talks about a lot sort of how all of our suffering matters and needs to be acknowledged. So I would say that those are all through lines and, you know, that that she discussed and I put together the dots that most of our guests have had, you know, that same wisdom as a result of their trauma. Yeah, that that makes so much sense too. I think particularly in, in trying to find out ways to cultivate compassion for oneself that doesn't get routed through self-pity, 
Because I think often, at least for me in my own life, it can be easy to think uh, self-pity is how you get compassion towards yourself and you need to go there to, to get that thing. And, and I think actually like being uh, reminded or learning that it, those are actually two very different things that give you two very different things can be incredibly useful. And I don't, it's really interesting because, you know, as you would imagine, our guests, these are often um, unthinkable circumstances most of the time. But I wouldn't say ever that has somebody has come across as having pity for themselves. They all have a really strong sense of self. I would say more heightened and defined than most people I know in their strength and their capabilities. Um, and, and to some extent, like they all freaking learned what matters most, right? And that is people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they just have so much to offer. No, that makes a lot of sense to me too. I think there's potentially a connection between not routing everything through the lens of self-pity and also dealing with a a term like unthinkable. Because one of the things that at least I kind of tend to associate with self-pity is some version of um, how could this have happened to me, which is a totally understandable and human sort of question. But I, I think any any response to pain or to suffering that really takes reality seriously has to accept uh, some version of, well, anything that I can think of could happen to me, whatever solace uh, or sense of purpose I'm going to come up with as a result of whatever I've experienced, it can't be rooted in, I can't believe this happened to me um, because it did. And, And things that you think can't happen to you happen all of the time, which is a big part of why I imagine so many people need uh, stories or shows like this is, is because it turns out the the list of the things that we think can happen to us and the things that the world thinks can happen to us are, are very different. Well, there was that, there was a guest, we had Damien Eccles who spent 10 years in solitary confinement for a crime he didn't commit. And there he became a master meditator at calming his mind. And he will not tell his story without making sure to explain that this didn't happen to him, it happened for him. Because the way he can bring his energy into a room, you know, he he went from this jail cell to New York City, the way that he can drop in to be embodied with himself and calm in any situation. So you you brought that up, the idea of something happening to you versus flipping that and saying, well, how does it serve me? And taking back the power to some extent. Yeah, and that's so useful. And then, of course, I, I say that and then I think, well, yes, but I can admire that in others, but I've never thought, man, I got to go suffer some more. So it's also always a lesson that I want to push away too, which, again, I think makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and we have to be careful, right, not to gloss over it. Right, or to say anything that might feel sort of compelling in the moment but can land as a sort of pat justification, which is like maybe it all did turn out for the best, which is both true in the sense that whatever you do happen to experience, you want to use because it's yours and you have it and you have to live with it. Um, but you also uh, don't want to like minimize or dismiss or or gloss over very real like loss or grief. And Yeah. Um, and that also exists in a future state. So when you're in the thick of something, that is part of the absence of hope, right? These people have distance and perspective. So in high, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when they are in the the thick of their suffering or trauma, this 
reality or idea that somehow this will have served me is 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 really a future state. So I think being re- realistic and reminding people of that is important too. Yeah. Man, and that's always my thought. It's like, I always want to have suffered. I always want to be able to like refer uh, darkly to something that makes me sound noble and interesting and that I've learned and grown from as a result, but also it's safely in the past. And I have all the peace and wisdom and experience of that suffering, but none of the actual suffering. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting how I can always find a new like maladaptive fantasy, uh, no matter what the situation. Yes, I can relate. Oh, good, 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 good. Well, That just sounds really compelling. Thank you so much for telling us a little bit about it. And um, I think we'll be able to take some of those thoughts into our final question because the, the, the sort of situation that this letter writer finds herself in is really... It, it's a it's a it's a compelling story. I, I I felt myself in it as I was reading this letter. It was very vivid. So the subject is apparently gal pals. My mother-in-law recently came to stay with my wife and I. We're both women for a week to help around the house after my wife recovered from surgery. I'd already taken all the leave I could from work. We were grateful for the help, but it quickly became clear she was snooping. She always denied it. Then I came home one day to find her screaming at my wife. We're not wildly kinky, but we do have sex toys and restraints. We store them in a plain wooden chest in our bedroom, which we've had padlocked, so none of our nieces or nephews ever mistook it for a toy box. Our nieces and nephews, however, have always respected our house rules and never go rummaging in our bedroom. My mother-in-law had broken the padlock off with tools from our toolbox. Apparently, she was horrified to learn we have a sex life and had previously been telling herself that we were just two women who had given up on men and lived together as married friends. Yes, seriously. I guess she never really believed in lesbianism. She told my wife that I had corrupted her, that we were deviants, and she was going to make sure no child ever comes to our house again. We told her to get out, and she hasn't been in touch with us since. But she has phoned my brother-in-law and my sister to tell them not to let us near their kids. My brother-in-law laughed at her and promptly called us to laugh some more. While my sister was just astonished and awkwardly asked me if we could never discuss this again, please, and still wants us to babysit. I just don't know where to go from here. My wife is distraught, obviously, and it brought up a lot of feelings from when she first came out. She had begun to think that her mom actually accepted our relationship. Her mom is a widow with very little family contact or support outside of us. Brother-in-law only sees her once a year. And in spite of everything, my wife wouldn't be happy never speaking to her again but my mother-in-law is now ignoring us and seems genuinely to want my wife to leave me. I feel helpless. Half of me wants to try contacting my mother-in-law to see if she's calmed down any, and half of me wants to enjoy this sudden estrangement. Can you please advise me on how to move forward in supporting my wife, getting past the intense embarrassment I still feel, and mending fences in any way with my mother-in-law? Man, is your mother-in-law my uh, college girlfriend's mom? Because this is, this is ringing some bells. I mean, the whole prying the wood box open, I'm just envisioning her with the padlock and the toolbox. I mean, yeah, this definitely is is one of those categories where it's both like, I understand why people use the word unthinkable. And I also can think of about five mothers I have known in my life wh- where this would just be like any other Thursday. Absolutely. No question. Yes. So true. And one of the things that I want to acknowledge and and hope this letter writer sees is that the fact that there is intense embarrassment and something, you know, that there is nothing to be 
embarrassed about in your relationship, your sensuality, your sex life with your wife. And the fact that your mother-in-law is putting that shame and embarrassment on you, I just wish in that area you could take back a little of the power because it's certainly an embarrassing situation and an awkward situation, but you having any sense of embarrassment or shame around it on a deeper level, I just want to release you of that immediately. And man, this is a complex one mm-hmm. because it, it's just so layered, right? She wants to care for her wife who wants a relationship with her mother, but it's clear the mother-in-law has a shitload of issues she needs to deal with. So I don't, I, it's like, where to begin? Yeah. And I can really relate to the letter writer feeling like half of me just wants to say like, let's take this as the win that it so clearly is. And then also her obvious sadness for her wife, who is unable to take quite the same perspective that their brother-in-law is, which is just like, wow, you know, this lady is nuts and she is behaving in an absolutely ridiculous way. And on the one hand, it could be painful. And on the other hand, from a certain perspective, uh, it's just sad and funny. Um, so none of that is to say that like he had the wrong reaction or that your wife had the wrong reaction, just that they all make a lot of sense to me. And so there's sort of the the question of how to support your wife is, is I think, a, a useful one and a good one. But certainly I would not encourage you, letter writer, to get in touch with your mother-in-law right now. It It, it does seem like you're, you're it didn't sound like the letter writer had plans to like give her a call tomorrow, but I just wanted to like really remind you if, if this is where she's been recently, like breaking into your stuff, freaking out that you weren't married as a joke and then never talk to me again. If you were to try to call her right now, I don't think that it would go well. I don't think you would feel good about the conversation. And I don't think that there's a reasonable expectation that you could like hope she's going to come around in a, in a single call. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the focus on loving and supporting your wife is where all the energy should go as opposed to you focusing on repair with a mother-in-law who is not rational or reasonable. So I, I think how you show up for your wife is not in the mending offenses. I think it's listening to her. I think it's, you know, loving with her. I think it's sitting with her and everything she's feeling about her relationship with her mom. I'm happy to hear it sounds like there's some other familial relationships that are really healthy, you know, based on the the few sentence descriptions. So, yeah, I think surrounding her with, you know, your nieces and nephews and siblings, anybody who brings health and some sense of vitality and connection and joy to your life while she really grieves this painful experience with her mom. Yeah. And so letter writer, in terms of just dealing with this for yourself, I would encourage you to talk about this with one or two of your own friends, maybe even friends that you and your wife share in common, people whose judgment you trust, who you don't think are going to like either fly off the handle and say like, I'm going to go, you know, to her house and set it on fire or who would be maybe likely to kind of 
act uncomfortable as well. Just so you have somebody to talk about this with. I, I um, This is not like a direct one-to-one situation, but I have also had some experience in terms of extended family members like crossing pretty significant boundaries to like pry into my own sex life and then having pretty bananas reactions. And, and I really vividly remember how incredibly embarrassing that is. Not because you feel like she was right to do something, but just that's like a massive boundary violation. It's incredibly exposing. It makes you feel unbelievably vulnerable. It really just like hits you in the most vulnerable places. So I really, really understand that, you know, just like physical embarrassment and humiliation not because you think she's right, just because of the level of the violation. So I want you also to be able to take that seriously because while I I really can appreciate and understand why you want to continue to feel sympathy towards your wife and it makes a lot of sense to me that she feels conflicted about her mother, I also want you to really make sure that the two of you don't don't try to um, soften or euphemize how fucked up what she did was just because she's your wife's mother and your wife doesn't want to become permanently estranged from her. Like, I just really want to make sure that you two don't do that. So that doesn't say that doesn't mean you have to go to your wife right now and say like, hey, we actually need to like write down on a, on a piece of paper just how fucked up it was that your mom did that. But I do want you to be able to sometimes when you have a partner who's really devastated, it feels like I don't want to even bring this up or remind them of the details because it's so painful. But I do think it's actually really important to have a, a couple of conversations where you, I'm sorry to like, you know, call in the word processing, but like really talk about like how that made you feel. I, I mean, I really do think that especially something that feels that like embarrassing and you just want to like move on or like paper over it. I think it will do you both good to actually talk about what happened, how you felt, what are some things that you can do next. And certainly if your wife envisions resuming a relationship with her mom in the future, then you really do need to be able to talk about What's that going to look like? Because if that's something that your wife wants or needs, that's one thing. But I I think it would also be really reasonable for you to say, I need some new rules about whether or not she comes over to visit. Just because, again, not to like unduly punish her, but just like anybody who comes to your house and breaks into your stuff in your bedroom and then screams at you about it is somebody who cannot be trusted to act like sanely, safely or lovingly and is not somebody who you should be like, hey, in six months, maybe if she agrees to pretend that never happened, let's bring her back in the house and see what happens. Because I just think that would be really, really upsetting for you both and would absolutely lead to further fucked up boundary violations. Yeah. I think those boundaries are critical. And, you know, thank you for sharing about your embarrassment and sort of contextualizing that. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was helpful for me to hear that perspective. And I do. Yes, I don't think this is a safe relationship for you. And I would agree, really, you know, if your wife wants to, which would be very reasonable to to have some sort of connection with her mother, that you, to some extent, protect yourself with the boundaries, but also protect your wife with the boundaries. Yeah. So I, I think that piece of it is really critical if there's going to be a relationship moving forward. Yeah. And and again, a lot of this is totally speculative because we're just assuming that the mom's going to soften, but it's also very possible that she won't. It's also very possible that she will ignore any attempts that your wife 
makes in the future to try to uh, resume contact. And so I want you to be prepared for that. I also, I hope this isn't what happens, but I want you to be prepared for the possibility that your wife might at some point decide that she is willing to entertain the possibility of ending your romantic relationship to please her mother. I don't think that's what she's like leaning towards right now. I hope that she doesn't. I just, I I think that's worth talking about again, maybe in like some useful couples counseling. It's just like, does part of you feel right now like you'd be willing to do that? Not in a sort of gotcha way or I'm trying to trap you into saying you want to leave me. I just, I would want to know. Um, and it would be good for the two of you to be on the same page. And it would also be okay for her to feel conflicted, but also pretty clear on, no, our relationship is my priority. But I, I think you do need to be able to talk about what your goals are here, because if they're very, very, very different, you're going to have to come up with some pretty thorough compromises. And yeah, I think it would be, if I were in your position, I would, I think, feel pretty comfortable saying, if you two ever decide to mend fences, I want to be able to support you. That's really separate from her ability to mend fences with me. And as far as I am concerned, anybody who breaks into stuff in my bedroom and then screams at my wife about it is not a friend of mine. It's not someone I trust. It's not someone I want to spend a holiday with. And so you're also going to need to process that because that's real too. And that's not just like punitive or a gotcha or a way of overriding her relationship with her mother. That, that would be a really reasonable limit for you to have. My last thought would just be, I wonder if part of your embarrassment right now feels a little bit connected to what your sister's response was. I can also totally understand because the sister in question is the letter writer's sister. So this is like her mother-in-law further removed. And it's like, why does she even have my number? Why is she calling me about this? What the hell is going on? But I can also imagine if she said, hey, let's never talk about this again. That might have made you feel worse because it's like, this really fucked up thing happened to me because of this homophobic woman. And now my sister's just so embarrassed that something untoward happened that I feel kind of like additionally like I'm responsible for it. Did, did that strike out to you? I don't think the sister meant anything wrong by it. I can really understand how something like that, you would just feel like, I don't ever want to like deal with this nutty woman who's like kid married my sister. But I do wonder if the letter writer kind of felt like, oh God, this is evidence that like, there's something really fucked up or weird about me if I drew this unreasonable response and now other people are saying never talk about it again like it's my fault. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does make sense to me. And I think, letter writer, this is really layered and complex and it brought to surface a lot of things about family relationships for both you and your wife. And I think acknowledging that and making sure to your Point that you acknowledge the entirety of it, working through the emotions and your experience with both your mother-in-law and your sister's reaction, um, you and your wife working together, your relationship and how within the context of this and how you move forward. And while you're supporting and loving her through grieving to some extent, you know, some loss with her mother, just acknowledging that the this is complex and a lot of things are existing and a lot of things are painful and confusing at the same time. And maybe sort of teasing them out so you, you know, can acknowledge how complex this is to move through. I do think I have one last thought that I want to add to this, which is um, there are elements of this that are funny, obviously, as like hostile and hateful and inappropriate as her diatribe was. I get why your brother-in-law laughed. I get why part of you sometimes feels like laughing. That makes sense. I also want you to take it seriously. 
Um, you can do both. I think you can laugh at the parts of it that are ridiculous and also take seriously the fact that sometimes ridiculous things are real threats, oftentimes, especially if you're queer. Um, you don't mention whether or not you and your wife want to have kids. And at least right now, it doesn't sound like either of you is in a position where you work with kids. But for all that she's acting uh, irrationally and wildly inappropriately, I do also want you to take seriously the very real possibility that if the two of you did have kids together, she might absolutely call CPS on you um, and try to get your kid taken from you. I don't think she would necessarily succeed. Like they also deal with nuisance calls. They don't just like show up and like, well, sometimes they do, but usually they don't. Usually there's like a long process. Um, And I think a lot of people, possibly most people would be aware that she was being like unreasonable and, and wildly homophobic. But I also don't ever want to encourage like a queer couple to just like laugh off a homophobe who's determined to denounce them as a danger to children because that can be real and dangerous too. So again, this isn't even just about your wife's relationship um, with her mother. Like right now, nobody was willing to join her on board her like homophobic danger to the children thread. Um, But that doesn't mean that it couldn't ever happen. So I, I just want you to be aware if at some point in the next couple of years she does want to have a relationship again with your wife and your wife decides to forgive her or let it go, I I still want you to be on your guard about what she might try to do to separate you from any kids you might have in the future. So that's something you should probably talk about too, because I I would just, I'll take this one seriously. I I don't think that this is the kind of homophobic parent who's going to be a lot better in five years. Do you know what I mean? Like this is not, there are some homophobic parents who come around, but I think breaking into our bedroom, screaming hysterically, promising never to let us be around kids. That's usually not one that ends up with. And then 10 years later, she's our biggest champion, you know? And she's planted the flag for, you know, the CPS. uh, Yeah, she's announced. I never, I want to make sure, my goal is no children ever visit your house again. And so again, don't, you know, I don't want to make this like too obvious a 2016 parallel, but like she's let you know her goals. Make one of your goals be to stop her. And there's a lot of different ways that might shake out, but that would be my best advice to you. So I would say don't ever have her in your home again, regardless of what your wife may decide to do on a personal level. I, I think that's a pretty reasonable bar. Um, and that's that. So before I let the rest of you go, Uh, I'll I'll take us to a slightly cheerier note of a different kind of child endangerment, which is recently somebody wrote in having uh, brought their young child to a swim class for the very first time and had been sort of nervous about the fact that the swimming instructor had told their kid, like, you actually have to put your face under the water, even if you don't want to, and was sort of looking for feedback on whether or not they might have been overly uh, sensitive or overly cautious. And I said, I really don't know enough about kids to have a good answer for this. So I put out a call and I wanted to read one of the updates that I got from a listener. So this one starts, I just listened to the podcast episode from this week and I have some thoughts about the swim lesson question. I've worked in childcare and thought a fair amount about how this might affect kids and parenting, but I don't have specific expertise in swimming. One thing I do know is that you're right, kids do sometimes drown. Because of this, I know parents often feel compelled to get their kids swim lessons for their own safety. I think this makes sense. It's very likely that kids will at some point find themselves in water and a little bit of experience and understanding how their bodies work under those conditions seem like it could make a big difference. 
It seems like the swim teacher in question is possibly a little old school and rigid and might not be a good fit for a kid who is slow to warm up or try new things, especially in the context of a water acclimation class. But luckily, this class is not the only possible way to get the kid familiar with water. If the same pool offers open swim or supervised family swim times, that might be another alternative. Are there other pools or bodies of water nearby where your kid could go together sometime and play together in shallow water under direct supervision, like you're right there actively engaged with them, always within arm's reach? What I'm getting at is that it might be possible to continue working toward the goal of helping your kid be able to keep themselves safe without making them stay in this particular class or until they're a little older and might be ready for a more formal swim class. Doesn't sound like this is a good fit. I might pull my child out of this class and give my feedback if asked, but I wouldn't necessarily make a fuss either. Then I'd think about other ways I could introduce my kids to water and water safety at a more manageable pace. Maybe at some point your kid will want swim lessons and maybe then you'll try again. But for now, I think it's totally fine to observe that this just didn't work out and adjust accordingly. So thank you so much for that. Uh, I'll probably read another one or two in the next couple of weeks, but my guess is most of the answers will be along the lines of, this makes sense. You could stay in the class and talk to the instructor or you could pull your kid out. Definitely not like a, either you're in immediate danger or you're overlooking something really serious. So you've got options. And that's it. That's all the questions that we're going to answer this week. Kimmy, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I am doing well. I loved having this conversation with you. And I think, you know, all of the listeners' letters were really well done and and thoughtful. And I'm happy we had a chance to think them through with them. Yeah, me too. So I I think we we did our best today and we get to move on with the rest of our afternoons in the hopes that we haven't ruined anybody's lives. And thank you again so much for making time for us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I, I think right now, Letter Writer, what you want from me as an advice columnist is to convince you to want something that you're not sure you want yet. And that's something I really can't do for you. But something that I do want to encourage you to think about is no one's coming to save you from this relationship. So if you want a different future for yourself, if you really feel like you do want to move in a different direction, you've got to think about what can I do differently so that next time when I feel this urge... I can do something else with the feelings besides get back in touch. Because you won't be able to, you're right that you won't be able to change those momentary impulses or those feelings, but it is possible to have a feeling and, and a habit cue 
and to change your response to it. So the next time that it's like, I don't know, whatever your usual pattern is, where like it's 2 a.m. and you're feeling lonely or you've been out with friends and you've had a few drinks, whatever the cue is that usually primes you to start reaching back out to your ex, you know, I would encourage you share it with somebody else instead. Maybe keep a journal for a while of just like things you wanted to say to your ex, but no would not be useful if you shared with them. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.